This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So you may ask, what's that title about? Um, well, when you are asked for a title early, sometimes you don't know what you're going to say. So I figured I could say anything. And what I was thinking about was... Ramoni Cajal and what he would have thought beyond his great gift of seeing things with the Golgi technique that were actually hiding in a forest of complexity. That led him to speculate and make predictions that we're still following in neurobiology today about how things actually connect. If he were alive today, he would be in wonderment, if you like, regarding all of the scales of details that we can now describe with different kinds of microscopies and labels. And he would probably be, as I think this conference is uh, uh, considering, amazed at the gaps. So where are we limited uh, with regard to filling gaps across either the spatial scales, all the way from macromolecules to organs, to the temporal scales. And so today I'm going to tell you a little bit about filling a few gaps all the way out to lifespans, two projects about dendritic spines and about lifelong memories. But I can't do this without giving you a little background on techniques. Uh, At the National Center that uh, Jennifer mentioned, we use really two techniques to do electron microscopy across scales. One is serial section electron tomography, where we take thick sections, map them to get the best X, Y, and Z resolution. We look at systems that can be manipulated. So here a vestibular hair cell as I'm moving around. That's what it's doing. The top is rocking, and it's changing the output. Or we use a method that was pioneered by Winfred Dink uh, called serial block face imaging. You'll see uh, an alternative of this from Held Hess shortly where you can put a microtome inside of a scanning EM and just automatically record image after image after image, kind of like taking a look at a piece at a loaf of bread as you keep slicing it and get a reconstruction with modern methods. If you selectively stain in a cell, as was done by uh, these colleagues, this was a sample we imaged when we first got this going about 10 years ago, that's the endoplasmic reticulum in the mitotic spindle. And if the endoplasmic reticulum is stained, in this case with horseradish peroxidase, you can then pick up, these are mitochondria, those are lysosomes, wait till you see the ER. And this cell's just in the early stages of dividing, okay? So that's all the ER. So how do you find that stuff hiding in plain sight? So first, uh, unashamed pitch, we push this technology quite a bit. While Harold has pushed the technology he's going to tell you about, we've been pushing this to higher and higher resolution and bringing stains in, as you see here, so that we can genetically mark components in the context of this method. We pushed it so that you can look uh, quite easily at uh, structures like the Golgi apparatus, mitochondria, ER. But we've done that through the benefit of a long collaboration with Roger Chen from about the time Roger came to UCSD, uh, even before the fluorescent proteins, uh, but then with families of proteins, coming up with ways of marking genetically for EM, and then ultimately with Alice Ting, uh, Apex, which is a small peroxidase. 
Now, that was preceded by activity trying something called photooxidation using a reactive oxygen generating probe, something as simple as eosin, to generate reactive oxygen and capture diaminobenzidine, which then can be reacted with osmium tetroxide or ruthenium tetroxide to give you electron density in locations. At the scale of molecules, we can see receptors marked quite clearly with this method. So here's an example getting us into spines now. Uh, Eric Bouchong, who's here in the audience, uh, when he was a graduate student in the lab, now he's a senior scientist in the group, tried out using phalloidin, which binds to actin, in this case with fluorescein, but also with eosin. We had it specially conjugated to give us a way of doing actin by EM. At that time, Francis Crick had postulated 1982 that do spines twitch? You can look this up. It's a beautiful little you know, theoretical paper, which was Francis's... Uh, you know, best thing being a theoretician. So these are all dendritic spines marked by actin in a confocal microscope. The cell, this is a Purkinje cell, was also injected uh, just to see it with a red dye. And at that time, our tomography was best done with massive microscopes. Here's a person for size reference. Okay. And we could punch through with these very high energy electrons, three million volts, through samples as thick as 10 microns. So kind of a light microscopic sample, but you can see inside. This is from a Fragile X animal model, and you can see how tortured or variable the spines are. That's a hallmark of that disease in animal models or humans. And then if you switch to the eosin phalloidin, do more or less the same thing. That's the light microscopy act, and looks like it's all over. It's not actually. It's concentrated in the spines, and if you punch through it, this is not a tomogram, it's just a projection. The spines are full with this flocculent material that's actin. It's not just filaments. It's like we know in cells now, a gel actually forms dodecahedral plates. Okay. So fast forward to today, we continue to develop these techniques in the math, and Rick Lawrence is a mathematician. Sebastian Fahn, who I believe is here, uh, is a polymer physicist. We developed software and methods and automated these microscopes so that we take as many as 1,000 or 2,000 images of the same object. So by tilting the sample, rotating it, kind of like having 1,000 drones in this room simultaneously taking pictures of you, then you have a super sampling. So this solves, to some extent, what Daniel said as the Z problem. So what you just saw play was one of these volumes. I'll show you another one. But if you extract the dendritic spine from that volume, that's what it looks like, okay, after you use some fancy tools to follow the actin. Okay, so that's the postsynaptic density. This is a little finger-like process. Probably this guy was trying to extend. But this is just a surfacing of the actin, okay? Here is a more recent one with something called the direct detector, which we invented at the center. So here's the spine, head, neck, the shaft of the dendrite. These are actin polymers. The little balls you see are actin monomers. Here you can even see, if you're close to the front, membrane proteins in the membrane, and then this is extracellular matrix, perhaps the perineuronal net that I'll talk about in a moment which you can see actually connects from the extracellular space through proteins in the membrane on into the cytoskeleton. That's the second part of the talk. If you look at this as a volume, 
now. That's just one slide. You can see how rich this is and how we extracted with the right algorithms what you saw on the previous slide. Okay. So this is what we do today at even higher resolution than this to match up to the molecular details that are coming from structural biology. But then to begin with different cadence of experiments to look at what changes during sleep, wakefulness, timescales that we can actually stop action quite easily. So with uh, colleagues uh, in Munich uh, and in uh, Stockholm, we developed methods to extract this kind of information in large scale. Uh, this is just an example of how this is done slice by slice. And you can begin to study these in consistency between spines in different regions or, uh, as was published in Science recently by a group collaborating with us, how this changes when you sleep or are awake. Spines shrink by 20% when you sleep. More adventuresomely, we're saying, okay, if we know it's actin or the majority of what's there is actin, what does it look like if you substitute for the uh, center lines that we defined for the actin that you saw in that previous colorful spine spinning, actually actin. And does that tell us anything about the charge and the crowding? So this is taking actin, replacing all the threads. This is actin from the PDB. Why do we do that? Because actin is highly charged, very acidic. And this leads us to predict that the actin creates an ion binding matrix, a gel, and it's actually the sol-gel changes that may be uh, driving a lot of the physiology that's interesting. Okay. So that's a speculation. Moving on back to that extracellular matrix, uh, in a short amount of time, I thought I'd try and squeeze in what I think is one of the most exciting projects, kind of a leave from uh, uh, Roger. Uh, this is what he and I and he was most excited about when he died. Uh, projects now being led by Varda Levram, who's here, uh, having to do with lifelong memories, and Martin Hetzer, who's also involved, uh, because this techniques overlap. But Roger's hypothesis is this, and you can look it up. It's in uh, a paper postulating uh, that very long-term memories might be stored in a pattern of holes in the extracellular matrix. The idea being that if the extracellular matrix holds state, and the more dynamic things, like Daniel talked about and you'll hear more about, know about the state of that part of the brain, then those things that turn over will come back or form those parts of cells guided by the extracellular matrix. Kind of like the extracellular matrix is the stone that's chiseled in that gives a durable state for the brain. So that was Roger's idea, that this extracellular matrix would be edited by metalloproteases. Synapses form. Synapses come to a shape by activity or size. Predicted that the synaptic proteins, pre- and postsynaptic, would have short half-lives relative to the extracellular matrix. So how do you test that? How do you play with that? Well, sorry, this is just a little bit more about the perineuronal net, which had been described by Cajal and others. This is what it looks like in light microscopy with wisteria floribunda as a fluorescent stain. And this is some of the molecules that are known to be associated with it. So you can use proteomics and look at that. You can stain it. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. You can stain this the same way that it was just done by light microscopy by doing a peroxidase reaction to mark that material in the extracellular space. 
You can reconstruct it by the methods that I showed you to see what it looks like. The synapses are in these holes. And then the question is, does it stay around? So what Varda did, uh, following a protocol that Martin Hetzer had first done, was create animals that are 100% nitrogen-15. You're otherwise nitrogen-14. So this is kind of the most expensive and heroic pulse-chase experiment. You can see the paradigm here. Uh, what is it, $800 a kilo for the food, something like that? And so these experiments are for the food could be $100,000 for a colony of sufficient size. And then uh, at the right point, after, let's say, a six-month uh, or an 18-month chase with the normal nitrogen, you sacrifice animals from the colony, grind up their brains, do proteomics, and then you're able to ask. Synaptic proteins have short half-lives. Those molecules that I said are part of the extracellular matrix at six months, still 30% of them. At 18 months, they're decreasing, but some of them are quite significantly more persistent than those constituents that everybody's excited about in synaptic plasticity, which do turn over. So this is supportive of Roger's hypothesis. Uh, can we image N15, N14? So then we went after tricks that are done more in geology or uh, in astrophysics, looking at uh, meteorites or whatever. Uh, something that was taught to me by a colleague, Victoria Orphan, at Caltech, working on some samples from the ocean. And this is a machine that uses a cesium beam, knocks out atoms, secondary uh, uh, ions, runs them down something like a mass spec column, and then point by point, you get a collection of masses for uh, as many as seven different uh, uh, atoms. And you can make a map, okay? So one of the things that we tried, uh, Nick's postdoctoral advisor, Jack McMahon, okay, so this goes back away, postulated and then proved that agrin, a molecule that's secreted into the extracellular matrix, guides synapse formation for the neuromuscular synapse. So we said, well, we have intercostal muscles from these mice. What do the end plates look like? Do we see a signal from this method that I just showed you? Yes. Okay, so that would be predicted. Here it shows you can do this. We went from there to ask in these samples from the mice that Varda grew, what about this stuff, this extracellular matrix? Is it old? And here you see, doing the same sort of thing on those samples, okay, that indeed it is, okay? And this, by the way, is myelin. Myelin turns out, like you saw, maybe if you were paying attention to the bottom, is myelin basic protein. Two other myelin proteins are old. So this is telling you, if you look at the brain after the majority of proteins have turned over, six months, 18 months later, what piece parts are left behind? And here, this is the stuff that presumably is left behind. Turns over very slowly, and these terminals... These boutons come in, plug in, in between. So this is, how would you say, data that is headed in the direction, I think, of strongly supporting Roger's postulate. All of this is unpublished, but I think it's exciting. It's the product of, I think, great thinking by many investigators, great colleagues, great collaborators, generous support, uh, this is the cast of characters, some of whom are here. And I think with that, maybe I'm en ended early. <laughs>
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.